Good morning, everyone. What a joy to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Before I pray God's blessing on myself and on you, there's a little matter that I just feel constrained of the Lord to bring to our attention this morning. And uh, when you turn to the book of Acts, chapter 10, and you just take time to do that, I'll cut into my sermon time to uh, say a few words this morning from Acts chapter 10. We have the Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And uh, when it comes to seeking God, talk is cheap. Action is a lot harder. And uh, I think the Lord would have us do something today that uh, I'm going to ask you to do it. And I would think that Tuesday and Wednesday would be a good days to do it because we want to do this prior to the pastor and his wife uh, going through these tests in Vancouver. I'm a great believer in fasting and prayer. There's a lot said in the scriptures about that, and I'm not going to take time to elaborate on it. But fasting and prayer. I'm using this passage of scripture just for a sample. In Acts chapter 10, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And he saw in a vision Evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming in to him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked at him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose name is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Now going on, he's already called for Peter. And in the 30th verse, it says, And Cornelius said, he's talking now to Peter. Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. I want you to notice two things there. I fasted and I prayed. Okay? There are some things I don't understand about fasting and prayer. 
I don't pretend to know it all. All I know is it works. <laughs> I've seen it in my own ministry. I've seen God do good things because there was fasting and prayer. I'm going to be speaking to us this morning on discipleship, and this kind of fits in. But fasting and prayer, fasting is denying ourselves some of the things that are most precious to us, food. <laughs> it's a stripping ourselves of those things that are normally our delight in the interest of seeing God perform and answer prayer. And I think that as a congregation here, God would have us do some fasting and prayer. But God is able to touch this little one that our sister is carrying, that seems to be having consistently problem after problem. But we serve a God who hears and answers prayer. And it's okay to say to our pastor and his wife, we're praying for you. But I think we need to do more than pray. I think we need to fast and pray. I think we need to put our heart and soul into one asking God to perform a miracle for this child. Whether he answers in the way we would want him to answer or otherwise, that's God's business, not mine. But my duty before God is to be serious enough about serious needs that I will do something about it, not just talk about it. And so we're going to pray first thing this morning about this situation. Job chapter 23 and verse 12 says, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. It's more important to hear from God sometimes than to eat. Father, we call upon your name today on behalf of our pastor and his dear wife and the need of this little one within the womb. We thank you today, Lord, that we have this privilege of laying bare our soul and denying ourselves in order, Lord, that your hand might move. I know, Lord, that we can't buy your uh, privileges from you. Yet, Lord, there's so much said about fasting and prayer throughout the scriptures. And I thank you, dear Lord, that we have this privilege of praying. And I pray, Lord, that you would lay it on the hearts of people this week for a couple of days, Tuesday and Wednesday, to do some fasting and some praying. Lord, we're concerned. We want to see this little one healthy and whole and brought into this life to, be, to enjoy life and to be a blessing in life and to serve you in life. And so, Lord, we lay this matter at your feet today, and I pray, put it on the hearts of people to fast and pray. And Lord, bless now as I endeavor to break the word of God to our hearts today. Speak through these lips of clay and speak into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm not telling you what kind of a fast to do. I'm leaving that up to you. There are partial fasts, there are total fasts. 
I'm not telling you what kind. I'm not telling you how long to do or how many meals to miss. I'm just saying you do what God puts in your heart to do, okay? Thank you for that. I'm going to read to us from the scriptures this morning. I want to speak to us. On the cost of discipleship, I want to read to us from Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And I'm going to give you time to turn to it. Reading from verse 25, Luke 14 and 25, And there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doeth not hear, uh, doth not hear, no, pardon me, my, my eyesight isn't as great as it used to be. And whosoever doth not hear or bear his cross and come unto me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest happily after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able, with ten thousand to meet him that cometh unto him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Let's just consider the, what discipleship is a little bit, just as an introduction was very, very common for spiritual leaders of whatever capacity in the days of Jesus and in the days when these, this is recorded, for spiritual leaders to have disciples. It was an honor, a very great honor, to be chosen by those that were highly esteemed to be their disciple. In the day in which we live, people pay big money to go to places of learning that have a reputation of being one notch above everybody else. I was sitting in the doctor's office not too long ago, and I picked up a magazine and I read some facts. To go to university, 
You can find universities where their fees are as low as $29,000 for, for a year for your fees. You can also go to universities that are $129,000 for one year's fees. Why do people go to the university that has $129,000 for their fees when they can go to a university for $29,000? It's because of the prestige. The name of the university and the name of the professors and when it comes to them wanting to proceed to the point of where they become a professor and they are looking for a job in that profession, they will find it much easier to find a prestigious position if they have attended a university that charged 129000 <laughs> than if they went to the university that charged twenty nine. So it was a great honor to be chosen to be a disciple of some prestigious individual. Nicodemus was, that, was one of those individuals. He was, he was a master teacher. Jesus said to him, aren't thou a master in Israel? In other words, a, a supreme one is really the, that, the meaning of that in the Greek. You are a supreme teacher. He had followers. He had disciples. And so it wasn't unusual for Jesus to also talk about discipleship, and he chose 12 disciples. And he worked with those 12 disciples. He poured his very life and soul and blood into those people for three and a half years. And they are called disciples until the day of Pentecost, when they became, after that, they became the teachers. They were no longer just disciples. They never ceased to be disciples when they became apostles. But they also became teachers. They're called apostles. Those that were their followers were called disciples. I didn't notice that in particular until the other day, just as I got meditating on it. <laughs> and so when Jesus talks about, you cannot be my disciple unless this and this and this. Now, I believe that sonship is one thing and discipleship is another. I believe that discipleship comes out of being or out of sonship. You cannot be a disciple until you're first a son. You cannot bring revelation to something that is dead. There first has to be life before there can be development and there can be growth. So sonship is one thing and discipleship is another. Sonship has to do with our position or our relationship. And the songs that you sang this morning certainly brought out a lot of truth. And our brother even in his prayer brought out the truth that we've been redeemed 
paid for, bought with a price, not of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. If any man has a right to discipleship and to be my instructor, it's Jesus. There isn't any man in heaven or on earth that is a more distinguished individual and has the right to teach than Jesus. Sonship cost us nothing. It cost Jesus his life. He gave us his life when we accepted him. It was a free gift. He gives to us eternal life. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It is a gift. But it brings life. And out of life can come discipleship and can come growth. Discipleship will cost you everything. Sonship costs you nothing. <laughs> but out of sonship comes discipleship, and discipleship will cost you everything. To be a true disciple of Jesus, you must lay everything on the line. Now in the King James Version, it says that if we don't hate our mother and father and all the rest, we cannot be his disciple, and that's a very hard word. Basically speaking, it's really not the best translation. It says, when it talks about hating your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your brethren, it means without prizing far less dearly. Another translator puts it more you must love me far more than he does his own father and his wife and his sisters and his brothers. Doesn't mean you hate them. God wants you to love your family with everything intent, very intently. But you must put Jesus first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Christ first. And I know that there's a cost to that. You can ask my wife. She has said this to me more than once, and yet she didn't regret it. She said, I always knew I had second place. Jesus had first. And she didn't, she didn't regret that. She knew that if Jesus was first in my life, I would treat her well. She knew I cared about her. She knew I loved her. But sometimes God called me to do things and go places and be away for seasons of time, up to three months, and I wouldn't be home. I wouldn't be home to care for her and the kids. Jesus had first place. And I'm going to tell you something. If you put Christ first, you'll never regret it. You'll never regret it. I want to use some 
men and women. Oh my, my time is flying away here. <laughs> I want to talk about Abraham. And I haven't got time to read a lot of scripture. But Abraham. God said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show you. When you decide that you're going to be a true disciple of Jesus and put him first, you will always find that Satan will step in and try and ruin it all. You will find that there will be some opposition to your project. Now the first thing he said, get out of your country. Well, that's not too hard to do necessarily. But from your father's house. And all that is near and dear to you. I'm going to show you a land. He didn't even know where that land was when he took off. Abraham was a wealthy man. When he rescued Lot from the kings that had captured him a little later on, he took 270 servants with him. That's a lot of servants. And I'm sure that it was the men he took to war. So if there's 270 men, how many women and kids? <laughs> Abraham was a big operator. But the moment that he decides, and he made up his mind, he would do whatever God required of him. He takes off for Haran. The moment he announces to his, to his family that he's going to take off to Haran, what, is, what happens? His dad wants to go along. Well, uh, you know, you don't want to you don't want to hurt the feelings of your pop. <laughs> and uh, a lot his nephew wanted to go along in his family. Now God had told him to leave his family, but the moment that he's going to leave, they want to go along. Well, that's not a very that's not a very simple solution. Well, he doesn't do anything about it. They get to Haran, and I can just imagine, we, the scripture doesn't tell us this, but, uh, you know, after all, his dad's an older man, and, you know, why don't we settle here? Let's just put a little imagination into this. I'm getting old. I don't want to go any further. This isn't too far from where we used to live. Let, let, let's stay here. The Bible tells us they stayed there for a while few years. In other words, a few years that were wasted. He wasn't going on to the promised land. It always costs something to perform the will of God. And so Abraham waits in Haran until his father passes away. Then he decides, well, I got to go on. And so he goes on. But Lot follows along. <laughs> to make a long story short, God promised Abraham a son. 
And he waited 25 years to see the fulfillment of that promise. And if there's anything that's important to people from the Middle East, it's you must have a son to leave your inheritance to. And when his son is in his teens, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to take him up to a mountain that I will show you. I want you to offer him up. Now, can you imagine that? He's waited 25 years for this son, and, and now he's just enjoying him, and he's in, his, he's in his teens where he can really enjoy him. He was given supernaturally in the first place because he was old and his wife was old. But God says, I want you to go and offer him up. Now, I don't know what he said to Sarah or if he ever said anything to Sarah. We're not told. But he did take the servant and he said, he told his wife he'd be away for a while. And it was a few days' journey to Mount Moriah. And I can just see that young son of his saying, Dad, and this is recorded in the scripture, Dad, we've got the tools and we've got the, we've got the, we've got the wood to make the fire for the sacrifice, but where's the offering? Where's the offering? And by faith, Abraham said, God himself will provide an offering. When they got within view of where they were supposed to go, he said to the servant, you stay here while I and my son go yonder. And again, by faith, he said, and we will return. Not I will return. God said, you offer up your son. But by faith, he said, we will return. He goes up to the top of the mountain. He builds the altar. He puts the wood on. And he starts the fire. He's ready to start the fire. And he puts his son, he binds his son, and he puts him on that altar. Now, can you imagine on the way up there, when it's time to sleep at night, and you know the next day you're supposed to kill your son? Boy, that would tear the heart out of anybody. And I think Abraham was just as human as you and I. God promised him he'd make his seed as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And yet he's telling him, you've got to kill your son. Now what's, the, what's, 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 what's all this mean? Thank God that when he was ready to thrust the knife into his son on the altar, God says, hold it. And he provided a ram in the thicket 
in the place of his son. But God then could say, I know that you have not withheld from me your son. In other words, the things that are the nearest and the dearest to us in life, whatever it might be, we have to lay them on the altar. Jesus has to come first. Go to Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. God told Elijah to go and anoint Elisha. Elisha's a big-time operator. He's got 12 yoke of oxen. You don't see many play outfits that have 12 outfits out in the field. <laughs> 12 yoke of oxen, and he was plowing with the 12th. Along comes the servant of God and casts his mantle on him, and immediately he recognized what that represented. It was the call of God. What did he do? The thing that was probably the nearest and the dearest thing to him at that moment was his success, his wealth, the yoke of oxen that he was plowing with, he probably loved that team of, of oxen. What did he do? He slew them. He slew the, the oxen that he was operating with. And he made a feast. And said goodbye to his friends and his loved ones. In order to do what? Just be the servant of the man of God. Just to be a disciple. Peter and Andrew said one day, Lo, we have left all to follow you. Discipleship means crucifying the flesh. Putting aside our own ambitions or desires if they're contrary to the will of God. Shall the disciple be above his Lord? It costs Jesus everything to bring us redemption. And I'm just cutting through, I'm just cutting short on this here. Matthew chapter 10, verses 33, 34 to 36. If we think that discipleship is easy, Jesus said foxes of a, have their holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Many a missionary has gone to the mission field at the call of God. Many have laid down their lives. Believe it or not, but there are about 250,000 people every year, Christians, who are martyrs for the cause of Christ. That's being a disciple. They went regardless of the cost. Through their death, 
many others have been brought to life. When those, their persecutors, saw that they were willing to literally lay down their life for the message that they proclaimed, it spoke to them. I'll close with the negative part. I want to get to the positive. <laughs> but there's a Russian Jew. This is many years ago, and this is a true story. A Russian Jew who came from Russia to Chicago to attend the Hebrew Institute in Chicago. And in the process of time, discovered that Jesus was the true Messiah. He gave his heart and his life to Christ. And when it was his sister's birthday, he had more than one sister. He wrote home to Russia and sent them some, a gift, one of them being a pen. And he told them all about his conversion and how wonderful it was to know Jesus. A little while later, he gets a letter back They said, we are having a public funeral for you. We are totally disowning you. We will never speak your name again. And the only thing that I've got left of remembrance of you at this juncture is the pen I am writing this letter with. And when I am finished writing this letter, I will stamp on it and sweep out the pieces. Total rejection by his family. But thank God for disciples. You know, there are some real incentives to being a disciple of Jesus. You'll never regret it. I said that before. You'll know that you're on the side of right. And you'll have a clear conscience before God and man. And you can go to bed at night and lay your head down on your pillow knowing you've done the will of God, regardless of the cost. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more fulfilling than to know you've done the will of God. And after counting the costs, and I never had time to get around to that, but counting the costs, count the resources behind you. The greater the cost, the greater the victory. We're going to see Jesus one of these days. And the greatest master and teacher of all, and the one that bought us with his precious blood, be wonderful to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of thy Lord. I tell you, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory it shall be revealed in us. Eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. O 
going to be wonderful to have some sheaves to lay at the master's feet. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I'll close with this statement. Jesus said it, ye call me master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am.